if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay, interesting title. I had fun with it. Got to get my stuff. One of the fun stages of child growth and development is the why stage. I love the why stage. You do something, you say something, the kid looks at you and says, why? And you give an answer. And they look at you and they say, why? And you give another answer and they look at you and say, why? And, I, and on and on and on down it goes. And, and if, if you don't put certain mental blocks on your brain, you start getting really frustrated with the kid. And you got a choice in that moment of when you start getting frustrated, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to just walk away? Are you going to look at the kid and say, because I said so? Or are you going to join in the game? And you start making up all these fun, outlandish reasons. Daddy, why are we coloring this blue? Because if we don't, we might die. Sometimes I have a little too much fun with my kids. What's a lot of fun is when they're in that why stage and they do something and they say, they say something and you look at them, serious expression on the face, and you say, why? And you step back and you wait about five seconds and then you see their brain slowly explode. <laughs> Later, as the kid grows up, hopefully they morph out of the why stage because they've figured out the reasons for everything in life, which is dangerous. But that stage comes where they think that. We've already talked about that in my history, and I had crazy pictures on them. But they go into, from the why stage, they go to, what then? What am I going to do about that? If this has happened, and I know why it's happened, how in the world am I supposed to respond to that? What, what's the appropriate action? There are some people who never grow into that stage, and that's a problem. There are some adults, though they have grown into that stage, they willingly choose not to live in that stage. And they just do knee-jerk reactions to everything instead of actually thinking, how actually am I supposed to respond in this situation? The Corinthians are not at the why stage with Paul. The Corinthians are at the what am I to do with this stage? They wrote a letter to Paul and they said, hey, Paul, in, in our meat market, there is meat there that has been sacrificed to an idol. What are we supposed to do with that? Do we eat the food sacrificed to idols or not? Paul takes the simple question, and it makes it more complex, because that's what Paul always does. He takes something that appears to be simple and shows that it is actually really complicated. He spends three whole chapters on this, what the Corinthians thought was a simple question. 
and he brings them to the point, as Francis Saver puts it, how then shall we live? Not just meat sacrifice to idols, but, but in our all whole life, how are we supposed to live with the information that's been given? In the society that we are living in, what does it mean to be a Christian in our society? It's one thing to say, you know, these are my beliefs. It's another thing to say, these are my actions based upon my beliefs. There are many Christians that are stuck in, these are my beliefs, and they've never morphed to, but this is how I'm going to live because of what I believe. As James puts in James chapter 2, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show you me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Paul encourages the Corinthians to show their faith in specific ways using this concept of meat sacrifice to idols as a diving board into the subject. He urges them through these chapters to build their lives on the humility of love rather than on the pride of knowledge. He encourages them to temper their actions on gray issues based upon those who might be led into sin. Then he takes some steps back and he discusses how all of our actions, whatever we do, whatever we say, should be based upon the gospel should be based upon a desire to lead whoever is in front of us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then, at the beginning of chapter 10, he urges the Corinthians not to take part in explicit idolatry. Now he gets to the passage at hand. Two scenarios. What do we do with food in our home, and what do we do with food in someone else's home? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put in fr- before you without waste- raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your Son to deliver your people from their sin, from our evil, wicked ways for earning a right to have a relationship with you, that I, we can come together and study your word and pray to you and sing praises to your name and develop a close relationship with, as we spend time with you in intimacy known by no other. Lord, it is truly an amazing thing to say that you are our God, you are our Savior, you are our friend, you are our King. All these relationships morphed into one and to crawl onto your throne and say, have mercy and give me help in my time of need. Lord, teach us the amazing riches 
of this relationship, even as we study your word today. Teach us what it means to have our lives confined by the glory of God, that those around us might know that you are the one we're living for and no other. As I'm up here, Lord, I ask that I might decrease and that you might increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. In this passage, Paul ultimately says, we have freedom. We have freedom in Christ, yes. But that freedom is to glorify God and to seek the good of others. Today, as we study this passage, we're going to look at the Corinthians situation. We're going to look at a theological situation. And then we're going to look at a practical situation. First, the Corinthians situation. For those of you who are here in our discussion on 1 Corinthians 8, what I'm about to say is a review. For those of you who are not here, this will hopefully get you caught up. At this time uh, in Corinth, the cities in the Roman Empire had temples to other gods. We know this. Idolatry was rampant in the Roman Empire. In fact, if someone was only a worshiper of one god, that person was considered a pagan. Today, we who are worshipers of one god consider those polytheists, worshipers of many gods, as pagans because real people only worship one god. It was flopped back then. People said, well, if you were truly religious, you would collect all the gods you could. It was the pagans who only lived in themselves to one. The city of Corinth, their main god was, goddess was Aphrodite. But they had shrines for religions all throughout the city. Every street corner basically had a shrine to a different god. It was a multicultural center, so all these other nations brought their gods in, and the Corinthians traded them like baseball cards. The worship of these gods required a lot of different practices that we're not going to go into, but one of the main practices that we know about is sacrifice. We know about sacrifice. Someone brings an animal to the altar, animals killed, blood sprinkled on the altar, animal is split, part of the animal is kept by the temple, the other part in this day was sold in the market to earn money for the temple. The meat that's dedicated to the false gods, it's pretty cheap, it's not the best cut, but it is less expensive. So the Corinthians had this question to Paul, based upon all that's going on, can I, when I'm in the meat market, can I buy that meat that's been sacrificed to an idol or not? Most of the Corinthians church said, yes, we can do it because we believe in only one God. The rest of the gods are false. They're not real. There's no power there, nothing. So therefore, since the gods are false, the worship is false, meaningless. Therefore, the meat is meaningless. Doesn't matter whether it's sacrificed to a God. In fact, if I say that meat is special because it's been sacrificed to a false God, I'm saying that God is special, and therefore I am saying that there isn't only one God. Therefore, a Christian must say that there's nothing wrong with the meat. Most of the church in Corinth, there's a small group of the church in Corinth that were saved out of an idolatrous lifestyle that said, wait a minute, no. That, that, that practice, that worship, that religion over there is satanic. And this meat was part of a satanic worship ritual, and I don't want to have anything to do with it because it is satanic meat. If I eat it, I'll be taking part of satanic worship. What do we do? Half one group says, hey, if you're a Christian, you're not going to have any problem with eating this meat. And the other group says, no, if you're a Christian, you will have a big problem with eating this meat. Paul, what do we do? 
which side is right? Side is right. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, well, when you're standing in the market, you have the right, you have the freedom to buy that meat because it is just food. It is just meat. There's nothing special about it. However, you better be careful that you are not leading another Christian back into idolatry because of your actions. Paul, just give us a clear cut and dried answer. Paul says, sorry, can't. Love those who are weaker, but know they have freedom. Then in, verse, in the beginning of chapter 10, he says, now, if that meat is not in the meat market, but it's in a sacrificial feast, why in the world would you be attending that sacrificial feast? The problem's not the meat, the problem's the setting. Don't be there. That's what we discussed last week. And we applied that to America and the American gods and how all these things are pulling us away from worshiping the one true God, pulling us away from spending time together as the church. You can go back and listen to that sermon. This passage, he says, okay, we've talked about meat, sacri- we've talked about meat in the market. We've talked about meat in the religious festival. Don't even go there. And then he addresses the situation of unknown meat in the home. Someone rings this doorbell ditch, rings the doorbell, drops some meat in your doorstep, runs away. He says, what do you do with that? Can you eat it? Paul says, don't ask questions, just eat it and enjoy it. Now, if you're in someone else's house, say it's Christmas time, and someone invites you over to celebrate the holidays. Of course, this won't happen in but, but uh, Corinthians, you put yourself in Corinthians day. Christmas time, someone invites you over to celebrate the holidays, puts a slab of meat in front of you. What do you do with that? Well, Paul says, eat it. Don't ask questions. It's the, it's the first don't ask, don't tell. You might ask, what's the big deal with what's with going on? Of course, just eat it. But Christians at this time was cl- were closely associated with the Jews. The Jews believed what is written in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In fact, they would use this verse in their prayer before a meal. They would use this verse. In that. That's why Paul is quoting it here in 1 Corinthians 10. He's quoting this verse. But before they prayed before their meal, before they ate, they carefully questioned the source of their meat. Someone's selling meat in the market, and the Jews are up there looking them up and down, saying, okay, where is this meat coming from? You've got to tell me the truth. Is this sacrificed or not? And they give them the fifth degree, third degree, whatever that phrase is. Okay, you know questioning everything about it, and when they're sure it's not been sacrificed to an idol, then they buy it. When they're at someone else's house, before they stab their fork into that meat, they're asking that person, where did this meat come from? Has it been sacrificed to an idol or not? And they have all this list of questions they have to ask, and then finally, when they realize that, okay, this meat is okay, it's not been sacrificed to idol, then they will pray and thank God, and they will declare the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Thank you, God, for providing this food. Amen. And they'll eat it and enjoy it. But when they quote this verse, they're actually truly meaning that only that which has been approved by the rabbis is the Lord's. And only that which is approved by the rabbis means everything in it and all who live in it. That's the Jews on one screen. They will only thank God for that which has not been sacrificed to an idol. They can't eat anything else. The Gentiles on the other extreme says, hey, everything's okay. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let us celebrate and enjoy all the passions and bring on all the meat. I don't care where it's from. So the Jews say, I will only eat this. Gentiles say, I will eat anything. And Corinthians are saying, 
Where do we fit? Are we with the Jew or are we with the Gentile? What is our theology on this? How then should we live so that we can adjust our actions? But they actually didn't say that. They just brought a simple question to Paul. And Paul said, well, thanks for asking the deeper question anyway. That's what I'm going to answer. And he launches into a theology to unpack this question. Paul has a very liberal understanding of freedom for his age. If Paul lived today, I'm convinced that many Christians in America would be appalled at what Paul allowed Christians to do. As we discuss the the, the theology of what is going on behind the scenes, I need to remind us that we're not talking about issues of conscience where the scripture is clear. Paul has previously said, run from idolatry. We talked about that last week. There are certain things we should not do because scripture says, don't do it. Paul has said, immorality is bad. Sex is for a man and wife in marriage, and that's it. There's no freedom here. Scripture is clear on what Christians should not indulge in. However, there are other issues that Scripture is not clear on. Issues where great men and women of God have disagreed over the years, and those are called the gray areas. And what is a Christian supposed to do in those gray areas? There are issues like alcohol, modesty, tobacco, movies, music, games, gambling, any other issue we want to talk about. And I spent a whole sermon talking about these gray issues. We have freedom to do so many things in our lives. But Paul says in that freedom, not everything is beneficial and not everything is constructive. So the question is, what are the boundaries on that freedom? If if we have freedom in this gray area, where should we not cross? That's what the Corinthians question is. Where should we not cross on these gray areas? How then should we live? And Paul presents two tests for this. Two tests to figure out where those boundaries are and how we should live. The first test is he begs us to ask, does this action glorify God? Does this action glorify God? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says very succinctly, so whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. There was a book that was published several years ago called The Purpose Driven Life. Great title. Because of that title, millions of books were sold. And many people's lives were changed by this book, reading it. There were some things in the book that was great, some things in the book I disagreed with. One thing I disagree with is the title. I wish that someone would write this book, The Glory Driven Life. Because that's the root of it. Every day, we should have this question What does it mean right now to live for the glory of God? Not just for this unknown purpose, but what does it mean to live for the glory of God right now? In my response and how I treat you and what I say to you, what does it mean to to word what I'm saying for the glory of God? Not for myself, not for you, but for him. What does this look like? Well, okay, you got a slab of meat sitting in front of you. Normally, I wouldn't put this picture on there, but since we've got a fellowship meal right afterwards, we can drool. It'll be okay. You know that God has given meat to everyone. Now, if you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry, you can just close your eyes. We know that God has given meat to everyone to eat and enjoy. Genesis chapter 9 tells us this. Doesn't matter who owned the meat, 
Doesn't matter who butchered the meat. Doesn't matter who cooked the meat. Meat is meat and should be eaten. Can I hear an amen? amen? Thank you. So, you look at this meat sitting in front of you, the aromas are coming up, and you're just itching to dive into one juicy bite. Before you do, you say, thank you, God, for giving me this meat. I, acknowledging, I acknowledge that everything I have is because of you, and as I eat this meat, every single taste I take, I'm going to eat it in thanksgiving for your gift. We don't just say that inside, we say it verbally with our mouth, that is eating meat for the glory of God. Incidentally, the tradition of praying before a meal came about because of this. It wasn't asking God to bless the food because he's already given it to us. Historically, the early church, whenever they met together to eat, they thanked God for giving it so that those around would know that it was God who gave it. He's already blessed it. It's thanking him for it. Paul said it this way, 1 Corinthians 10, 25 to 26, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising question of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That act of thanksgiving is eating for the glory of God. So, broadening it from just meat or food, when we're looking at an activity, can we do it acknowledging that this activity is a gift from God to us? Can we do it in a way that lifts God up, that honors him? That's the question of living, doing things for the glory of God. When when we have this mindset of, can I do this to thanking God for it? Can I do this to lift him up? Can I do this to honor him? Can I engage in this in this way? We will necessarily, or at least we should necessarily, not do something that's against him. Because we have this thing of, like, can I do this thanking God? Can I do this to lift him up? Sin will not do that. Now, this test is not completely, will not completely follow through. It doesn't always work because of our sin. Our sin gets in the way. I know of a guy who's cheating on his wife. And every time he went to bed with this other gal, they would kneel by the bed and thank God for the gift that he was giving them. Sin gets in the way. They weren't glorifying God because sin never does. One cannot sin and glorify him. We must consciously say, does this actually glorify him or does it not? Test one, the glory of God. Test two, the spiritual good of others. So the scenario that Paul gives us is the Corinthians are invited by a non-believer over to a house to eat. Since all food is okay, the Corinthians should sit down, thank God for the food verbally in front of those unbelievers because God has given it to them, and eat and enjoy for the glory of God. However, he says, but if someone says to you that this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of the conscience. There's a lot of debate over who the tattler is in this situation. Who tattled on the meat? Was it the non-believer who was there saying, oh, by the way, Christian, just let you know, yesterday was at the temple. Or was there another Christian who was sitting at the table who was a weaker one and who was saying, "Mm, don't eat it, don't eat it, I smell Satan on it. 
we don't know who tattled. I believe it is a non-believer because of the language that's going on, some of the original language going on. If we want to talk about it, we can talk about it later. Either way, the principle is the same, no matter who the tattler was. Because of the conscience of the tattler, the Corinthian was not supposed to eat the meat. Why? Paul explains his reasoning later in verses 32 and 33. He says, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. The NIV translates this, do not cause anyone to stumble. Some other translation says, do not give offense. Paul is not talking about hurting feelings here in the passage. He is talking about behaving in a way that will prevent someone from hearing the gospel, or behaving in a way to alienate someone who's already a brother or sister. Paul refused to live in a way that would hinder the gospel from shining. He said, my life is not about me. My life is about Jesus Christ, so that people would know that he came to earth to die for them, that they might have a relationship with him. A relationship that they don't have to earn, a relationship they don't have to follow any rules for, they just have to fall on the face before Jesus Christ and say, I believe in you. That's what Paul wanted to shine forth. He refused to live in a way that would hinder the gospel. And he insisted that in this, he was following the example of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ brought life to others by giving himself up to humility and by giving himself up to death. Paul said that that is the pattern he follows and that is the pattern that every Christian should follow. He's calling for Christians to be a third race. The Corinthians were saying, hey, the Jews do it this way, the Gentiles do it this way, which one are we supposed to be? And Paul says, neither. You're not a Jew, you're not a Gentile. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You should focus on the gospel instead of what the Jews are doing. You should focus on the gospel instead of what the Gentiles are doing. Focus on the gospel through your words and your actions so that people would come to know Jesus. Many Christians were angry at some of Paul's stances especially some of the Christians who wanted more freedom because Paul, in some sense, was limiting what they would do and they couldn't fathom the idea of their actions being confined by someone else's conscience. Why should someone else control my freedom? They tell Paul. And Paul has a different view. He says in verse 30, if I take part in the meat with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? The, 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 the translation here is convoluted, but Paul is saying, hey, this is just a meal. It's just a meal. It's just food and drink, and the food and drink are irrelevant. It's something that I eat, digest, and pass through me. What's the big deal? It, I'm not going to insist on my rights whether to eat or drink this, because if I did, I would make the food and drink significant. And therefore, since the food and drink is irrelevant, I'm going to use my freedom to forbear for the sake of the gospel, because the gospel is what is significant. Not the food, not the drink. In the words of the commentator, Gordon Fee, he says, so as not to offend that person, nor his or her moral expectations of Christians, and precisely because it is not a matter of Christian moral consciousness, one should forbear under these circumstances. When it has nothing to do with my salvation, why am I kicking such a fuss over it? Now, in this theology, I feel like I've kind of talked in circles a little bit. So let's think about some examples. 
I realized that some of the examples I'm about to give might cause some tension in this room. And I asked you to hear me out. And I realized some of the examples I'm about to give, great men and women of God have disagreed on what I'm about to say. Let's just all acknowledge that what I am right and they are wrong. I do that to see my sister's eye roll. Okay, so let's dive in. Someone comes up to you and, hey, invites you to do some yoga. Even now, some people are beginning to sit up in their chairs. Those of you who do not know, yoga is a system of exercises and stretches that has physical benefit to the body because it is a way, form of exercises and stretches. It was begun as religious exercises in India by the Brahmins. We know about yoga because these system of exercises and stretches were recorded in their holy documents and passed down through the centuries. The religious leaders would go to their holy documents, look at them and say, okay, this is how you do relaxation. This is how you bring release. This is how you heal your body from bad energy. Until through these systems of exercises and stretches, the practitioner will finally achieve enlightenment or nirvana. That stage of out-of-body experience that anyone in this Eastern mysticism wants, is going towards. Their, their form of heaven, even though it is a place of nothingness. Today, there are many different types of yoga. There's hot yoga, there's cold yoga, there's mystic yoga, there's atheistic yoga, there's biblical yoga. Uh, people have gone through all these stretches and they've found Bible passages to, to put with each one of them. There's, there's all sorts of yoga. There's, it's crazy, all the different titles there are there. But someone's invited you to yoga. What do you do? Well, let's apply some of the principles, shall we? Exercising is not bad. We agree? Okay, in fact, exercising is good. Ha, thanks, John. <laughs> One of the most physical people here says, no, exercising's horrible. <laughs> God has given us bodies to use. And in fact, as we exercise, we're taking care of our bodies and we're bringing him glory through doing that. Whatever exercise we use, when we're taking care of our body, we are bringing him glory. So when someone invites you to do yoga, technically, the exercises, there's nothing wrong with the exercises. Enjoy the exercises. Glorify God with it. Now, your friend, as she invites you to do yoga, she says, you know, when I do this, this practice helps me center myself and it releases bad energy from my body. Immediately, that friend has transformed these exercises into a religious ceremony, and that friend is inviting you to join idolatry, to join the worship of the God of Eastern mysticism. And for the sake of your friend, you should say, no, I cannot do that. You could say, but I have the freedom to do yoga. Yes, but by my freedom, I am letting my friend think that her religion is okay. 
when it's not? Which is more important, my freedom or that person's soul? That's what it comes down to. Which is more important? Okay. Anyone know what that is? Ouija board, yes, thank you very much. I was like, do I want to put a Ouija board up in a church? Let's talk about Ouija boards or other spiritualistic exercises, ways of contacting the dead or spirits to find out information or locations. We could talk about Ouija boards, we could talk about dowsing rods, we could talk about all these things that are in this realm of contacting things and finding information. Scientists have ex- been exploring this since the mid-1800s, ever since they said, you know, we, we, need to, we need to move away from spiritualistic things to more scientific and knowledgeable things. And they've studied these things, and they say, you know, there's nothing spiritual going on. The activities are merely driven by the non-conscious mind through the twitches of our nervous system. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. I'm not going to go into the background of all these things and why it happens. The question before us is this test. Though these activities glorify God, whether it's the Ouija board or other spiritualistic things, do they glorify God or do they glorify something else? By doing this, can we thank God and exalt him? Or is our mind exalting someone or something else? When we're doing this, are we filled with spookiness? Are we filled with praise? And I would say, whatever it is, if we're filled with spookiness, we cannot do it to glorify God. We can talk more about that, but that's the glory of God. What about the spiritual good of others? In the case of the Ouija board, when it was first made in the 1800s, it was, it, it was a harmless activity that people took part in. And, the, and throughout the years, there has been a lot of debate over back and forth, back and forth. Parker Brothers bought the board and it became very popular in the 90s of people to play, especially kids who wanted to be edgy. Like, ooh, and they go into their closet and they're like, oh, that girl is, look what we're doing, ooh. They played it without any concern, kids did. But a lot of people put some worth in this. Not mainstream, but there's other people who do. And for them, it's a religious exercise because they believe that they're contacting spirits whether it's the Ouija board or other spiritual activities, they believe that they're contacting spirits and therefore it is a worship thing for them. It's a worshiping of the spirits rather than God and those exercises play into their worship instead of our freedom that we may or may not have for this. So for the sake of their soul, maybe we should abstain. Now, I do have personal beliefs upon the Ouija board that we could talk about, but I'm not up here to talk about my own personal beliefs. I'm up here to explain how the test of what it doesn't mean to glorify God with something or not, and what does it mean to work for the spiritual good. And everyone must make that decision for themselves in these gray areas. How about other gray areas that don't have to deal with spiritualism or religion? Uh, In the past, we've talked about alcohol, we've talked about gambling, we've talked about music, modesty. Which one of these do I want to come back to? Well, I really, as I was preparing the sermon, I really felt about riling some people up. 
So we just got back from the beach. It was great. Loved the beach. You all should go sometime. The white sand, beautiful. Warm weather. Seashells. Jellyfish watch, washing up, telling the kids, don't touch it! But I'm not talking about the sand. I'm not going to talk about the warmth. I'm not going to talk about the lack of snow. I'm going to talk about swimsuits. Because beaches are full of swimsuits. Modesty is a huge topic in Christian circles. And it is a gray area. Because you can flip open the Bible and go here and go there. And amazingly, the Bible never defines what modesty is. It never does. Every culture has a different understanding of modesty. We could go to Germany, and they have a certain understanding of modesty. We could go to Iraq, and they've got a different understanding of modesty. We could go to, oh, heaven preserve us, California. (laughs) And they have a different understanding of modesty. Every area does because the Bible doesn't define it. It is a gray area. So what does it mean to have freedom in this realm of modesty? But in our freedom to glorify God and work for the spiritual good of those around us. What does that mean? What does that look like? We could expand this conversation from swimsuits to all these other gray areas. Sometimes that freedom means limiting our freedom, saying, hey, for the glory of God and the spiritual good of others, this is what I'm going to wear. Whether I'm a man, whether I'm a woman, I'm going to limit my freedom. Sometimes it means expanding our freedom for the sake of the soul in front of us. Sometimes it does. One person observed this. Non-Christian stereotypes of conservative Christians consistently characterize us as dour, legalistic joy killers. And at least part of this caricature is deserved. Evangelicals often do argue over where to draw the boundaries in morally gray areas. It's correctly observed that conservatives on these issues simply fail to reckon with how liberal Paul's own view really is Hence, Paul is seldom heard for the sake of traditional regulations. Paul said, if someone is going to be offended by what I'm doing, I would rather it be a fellow Christian being offended rather than a non-believer. I'd rather it be someone offended who has their soul securely bound for heaven rather than someone who might turn away from Christ for entirely the wrong reasons. How am I to live to reach the people for the gospel? Whether it's the realm of alcohol, gambling, movies, music, modesty, all sorts of other issues, I know I I did not answer the modesty question at all. We can talk about it if we want to. But I want us to wrestle, what does it mean to glorify God in everything? and work for the spiritual good of others in everything. Everything. Wrapping up these chapters, as we leave us in this, there's more questions and answers going on. I appreciate what Warren Wiersbe writes. He says, out of all these chapters, from chapters 8 to now, and in fact, back to chapter 6, there's a lot of tests we can apply to the decisions we make every day and the activities that we will willingly involve in. Paul says, all things are lawful. However, will this activity lead me to freedom or will it lead me to slavery? 
as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12? Will it? Because there's some things that will lead us into slavery. We might have the freedom to do it, but it's going to put us into bondage. That's why we run away from drugs. That's why we run away from things that are addicted to us. Because no, I will not put myself into bondage. My freedom should not put me back into chains. Will they make me a stumbling block or a stepping stone, as 1 Corinthians 8, 13 says? When I'm, when I'm with Christians who might be led into sin, is my freedom going to lead them back into sin or is it going to lead them to freedom in Christ? I need to moderate myself because of that. Will these activities in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, will they build me up or will they tear me down? Are they leading me to God or are they leading me away from God? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, will the, are these activities pleasing me or will they glorify Christ? There's a lot of things that we as Christians do because it pleases me rather than actually glorifying him. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 10, 33, will they help win the lost to Christ or will they turn them away? And that's the big one. And what, is what I am doing helping win the lost to Christ or is in what I am doing actually causing someone to say, I will never be a Christian because I knew a Christian once. The way we use our freedom and relates to others indicates whether we are mature in Christ or not. Are we? Are we? What is the driving force behind what we say and what we do? Is it us or is the gospel? We all need each other to work together to edify one another and show each other what does it mean to stand up and say, I'm going to glorify God in this situation. That went really far. How then shall we live? We have the freedom to glorify God and we have the freedom to seek the good of others. And that is the boundaries on our freedom. Today, we come together as we do once a month to reflect on what Jesus Christ did. That he, 